You are listening to another episode of the Darkest Hour Media Podcast, the show that takes a deep look at some of the greatest horror films of the past and present and gives them a loving, thorough autopsy. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by Michael T. Kuchak and Vikram Wheat. Gentlemen, how are you? Vic, what's going on tonight? Well, you know, I've been wiping toddlers' asses, and uh, I'm ready to talk about horror movies. Sounds like a typical Thursday. I, How about you, Kuchek? I've been watching Vic wipe toddlers' asses in it's public. Streaming, you know, streaming online. It's live streaming, yeah. It's- you should, <laughs> dude, you, you should really just try to keep it to your own kids, man. I, I think you'll get into a lot less trouble. <laughs> I should mention, you have to be 18 to log on to the live stream. <laughs> yeah, you have to pay for access with bitcoins yeah. on the dark web. <laughs> <laughs> I've read so many horror specs that are about like uh people getting killed while like there there's this uh you know group of people online who are paying to see like the snuff type situation. <laughs> and uh yeah, you know, there there's another side to it, you know, if you're not seeing teenagers getting chainsawed in a warehouse somewhere, you're watching Vic run up to toddlers and try to wipe their asses like, <laughs> That sounds like a, a comedy skit on some European show, you know, yes, like that would yes. actually air on television. <laughs> yeah, the Norwegians would love that kind of shit. They would go nuts for it. Uh, yeah, at long last we could dispel the, the fallacy that Norwegians don't know how to use stairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, something else that uh, the Norwegians love, or so I've heard, is... Black metal! Yes, that is absolutely true. And a little uh, 2014-2015 horror film uh, directed by David Robert Mitchell, who I was unfamiliar with. I guess he did something about a slumber party, uh, more of a traditional teen flick, I would uh, imagine. But the film is called It Follows, and here is a brief plot synopsis in case somehow you need one. After carefree teenager Jay sleeps with her new boyfriend Hugh for the first time, she learns that she is the latest recipient of a fatal curse passed from victim to victim via sexual intercourse. Death, Jay learns, will creep inexorably towards her as either a friend or a stranger. Jay's friends don't believe her seemingly paranoid ravings until they too begin to see the phantom assassins and band together to help her flee or defend herself. Gentlemen, what uh, did you think of It Follows? Starting with you, Vic, what's your relationship with this film? This is kind of the first movie I feel like that we've done where I don't have, it isn't, well, I was 10 when I saw this (laughs) and I had this, you know, or I was 16 and I snuck into a movie theater. You know, I saw this streaming on demand whenever it became available on demand. I actually purchased it sight unseen just based on the reviews. And that was the, the fastest way that I could get it because getting to a movie theater is just out of the fucking question but uh i remember actually watching it with my wife emily for about 20 minutes she was on board once we got past the the open was upsetting but she got past that we got to a certain point and she went nope i can't do it she got up and checked out so (laughs) do you know what that certain point was I, i mean i would guess like when it got scary Probably not long after she is infected with this uh, strange curse. So uh, 
I watched the rest of it by myself. I have revisited it two or three times since then, and then again uh, earlier today, just in preparation for the podcast. I've seen it a couple of times. There are uh, things about it that grow on me each and every time. I think the cinematography is actually quite brilliant, especially for a movie with this kind of budget, and, and some other details and stuff that I'm sure we'll get into. I do think it has some third-act problems and, and a few other things that hold it just back from really being a, a great or a sort of timeless classic, because I think it's very close to that level of filmmaking. But it's a very good film. Certainly something that, that deserves the uh, loving autopsy we are uh, about to descend upon it. <laughs> Get those scalpels and instruments ready, boys. Loving, are you ready for your love? <laughs> <laughs> and you, Mike? Well, you know, I first saw it, fellows, when I was 10, and I <laughs> stole the VHS out of my local... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, wrong movie. I was, I was thinking about Air Bud, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, actually, yeah, I, I, you know, very similarly, you know, we've been doing podcasts for a couple of years now and, you know, for, uh, it's always like Friday the 13th movies or, uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead or, you know, stuff like that. And in this case, it is really like, um, oh, the movie came out and I read really good reviews of it and I said, I'm going to go watch that movie. So I went to the Arclight and I watched it and I came out and I'm like, that was a good movie. It's like there's no giant narrative behind it. I just kind of went to a theater and watched it and liked it. Uh, as soon as it became available on streaming, I watched it again, and then I watched it again today. Um, it is a film that I flat out love. Uh, you know, it, it, there are quibbles, but even the quibbles are things that uh, I just kind of accept as just kind of part of the tapestry of the film. I mean, there's nothing that really pulls me out of the movie. Uh, there are things that I would have liked to have seen here and there plot-wise, but I, you know, uh, it got kind of beat up and, you know, there was a lot, there was kind of a, you know, I mean, every time you have like an independent movie like this that kind of pops up out of nowhere, you know, there's always a pushback. Uh, I remember Blair Witch was like that. Paranormal was like that, where like suddenly, you know, it's like it's not that good. It's overhyped, bah. and I don't know, man. I think this is just a fantastic movie. I flat out love it. Yeah, there's been a considerable backlash, and I actually listened to a couple of podcasts today that you know these folks were entertaining, and one of them, both guys, just absolutely hated it. I wouldn't say hated it, but they, they spent most of the show taking it apart. It's a podcast yeah. called You Should Have Seen This By Now, but they were they were funny. And uh, you know, and, and then but they kept giving it left handed compliments though throughout it. And so, you know, it it wasn't really infuriating so much as, well, you know, okay, interesting. So that's why how you saw it. You know, that's an issue that, that you had. I get it. And then there was one called uh Too Spooky which uh, this is another show that uh, I thought they were really funny. They were a little more excited about it. They actually interviewed the it, it you know, the, it from It Follows, which was a fun little thing that they which one? concocted. No, oh, they, they, oh, 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 it was kind of like a, oh, 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 like a bit. Okay, they, yeah, it was a I get bit. It. Okay. They had like some kind of uh, voice altering filter, and you know, either it was the guy or a friend of the guy suddenly came on and started fielding questions as the as the creature, and it was, uh -huh. it, was it was cute. But uh, you know, I I've got, detected this sort of backlash and just kind of you know as as you said mike you know there there's people that have picked it apart quentin tarantino like caused a bit of a 
uh, kerfluffle when he um, he said, "Well, I really liked it, but," and then he, you know, basically tore apart sort of the logic of the of the creature and you know why it could have easily been more consistent. Why wasn't it? And you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And a lot of people just generally say that the ending, even like in the glorious uh, reviews, like the more sort of uh, loving reviews that it's received, like a lot of people point out that it doesn't have a particularly strong ending. And I, you know, I can turn all of those criticisms around in my head and I kind of still reach the same basic conclusion that you guys have. You know, it's just that this is a really, really interesting singular film that a lot of its issues that I think people have are more that it doesn't spell stuff out as much Mm -hmm. as a lot of films do in terms of their mythology and their plot. And it actually has an intentionally dreamlike narrative logic that, you know, stems from the fact that the writer director came up with this idea, thinking about nightmares that he had as a child. It's not the imagery isn't lifted from his nightmares, but this whole thing came from the concept of, you know, being haunted by something that has a dream logic and you're not going to be able to just solve it like, oh, well, a silver bullet and we'll, you know, we'll drive a stake through its heart or, oh, we just have to, you know, return the, the bones to their proper resting place. None of that bullshit, even though like the characters try stuff, but they have no real basis for, you know, believing that it's going to work and it probably yeah. didn't work. And I, uh, that's one of the many things that I love about this film. And I, I've mentioned in the past, I, I have kind of a pet theory that, you know, I, cinema is a, a shareable dream and a horror movie is, is uh, you know, thereby a shareable nightmare. And I think that, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a shareable nightmare adhering to some kind of nightmare logic. Uh, there is something almost, I would say, almost uniquely American in this desire to uh, have really firm logic, especially in uh, the world of development, development executives. You know, it's always, you know, the rules and how the rules work and da 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 And I know all of it is just made of bullshit. You know, oh, well, if you knock on a door at midnight, then a ghost comes to get you. It's like it, we're just right. making up ra- random bullshit that you would yeah but it's like it's almost almost dumber when it has some ridiculously specific you know magic like um dorothy clicking her her red slipper ruby slippers together will send her back home if she does it three times you know like that's patently absurd in a normal quote-unquote and especially uh, a studio uh film they would get a visit from Professor X physician mm-hmm. who would tell them that they have to do X, Y, Z magical thing in order to dispel it. And then they would do that. Cause this and... thing is actually like the Google Mara from Czechoslovakia and it's, it's some right. kind yes. of entity yeah. that goes back to folklore. And yeah. And, and so mm-hmm. someone would uh, flip open an old book and show them like a wood carving mm-hmm. picture of, you know, some peasant with an exc- exclamation point over his head running away from a guy <laughs> following him around, you know, and it comes down to what, cabin in the woods was making fun of you know this desire that uh you know these films absolutely have to follow a very specific formula or else the ground is going to rumble and 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 you'll be punished by you know by by your fan base uh, i mean, horror movie is not supposed to be about safe spaces or or cookie cutter elements yeah 
predictable elements. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be weird and scary and push the envelopes and strange and do new bizarre shit. And if you just insist that it be just nothing but a pop song that that talks about skeletons and ghosts that go boo, then I mean, what the fuck, man? I mean, it's yeah, there's, like, a, there's the demographic of horror fans, and I, you know, I'm not taking shots at you as people, but you know, like I think there's an overlap between horror fans and romantic comedy fans, and like I think that you're kind of attracted to the same things in a way if you like just want a slightly different iteration on a formula that you, even if it's, you know, a scary formula, it's comforting somehow, you know, to, yeah. to kind of go through the same experience with just different characters and slightly different concepts. It's subjective. I mean, you like what you like. And there are a lot of movies that I enjoy that follow this same realm. But at the same time, I have that much more enjoyment of films that take me in weird directions that I really don't expect. Like, uh, you know, I, like The Witch is a very similar film where you know it got a lot of attention. It was something new. Uh, some critics were reacting very well to it, and immediately got started getting a pushback. You know, it was uh, overhyped, and I thought you know everyone loved it, but I thought it was just dull. And it's like, all right, I mean, if you found it dull, that's fine. I mean, we just know what you enjoy. You know, uh. But man, I can't say that this is a bad movie for trying something new. And I think that, you know, that kind of dreaminess and, and lack of groundedness actually makes it that much more frightening and more interesting. See, Mike, I think you've actually hit on a bit of it there because I agree, John, with your overlap in terms of sort of formulaic genre stuff with romantic comedies. But I always find among let's say, I don't want to say true horror fans, but among the, the more adventurous, the, the more curious, the more thoughtful horror fans, the real overlap to me is with comedy. Because I find that there are things that scare some people that don't scare other people in the same way that some people love Jerry Lewis and some people love Steve Martin. Um, you know, I mean, it's you're, you're, a, you know, you're a, a Beatles fan or, a, uh, uh, or an Elvis man. Um, How old are you? Are you, are you are you are you in the ARP by now? Holy shit! I love Jerry Lewis and Elvis. I'm just thinking of, of sort of you know divisive issues in genre and that sort of thing because the complaints that I mean again so I have I have my issues with the some of the interior logic and stuff of it follows but when I recommended it to other people who have come back and said that they didn't like it. What I find is that they just say, well, it wasn't scary. So I think there are people to whom that image of something coming towards you, that shot through the window of the old woman walking directly towards you. If you find that image frightening, then this movie is going to scare the shit out of you. But there are people for whom that doesn't work. I think that I mean it really comes down to uh, can you find an appreciation in dread? Uh, I think that it's dread is not for everybody, and I think that uh, for a large number of people, uh, dread is just dull stuff isn't happening. I think that you know when a film leaves you the space to fill your own imagination with. Uh, you know, that's, that's where you start to find, you know, fertile ground for dread. And it's not for everybody. I think, uh, I, I, you know, I think that uh, similarly, if we're going to talk about the crossover comedy, you know, there, there are very funny movies that I've seen that aren't like overtly like, here are the jokes folks, you know, mm -hmm. whereas if 
again, if we're going to talk about, you know, studio films, uh, if you see like a lot of trailers, you know, they're very, very similar. Very often there will be at least one beat where someone gets conked on the head and, or falls down and a crowd goes, oh, and that's to let the audience know that if you like, if you were the kind of person who laughs at people getting bonked on the head and falling down, then this you'll find enjoyment in this film. And, you know, very similarly, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who really just kind of dig having a movie just kind of yell boo in their face every few minutes. And to them, it's like, okay, those are clearly scary parts, thereby this is a scary movie. I knew a guy who produced a film who uh, he had a screening in which a woman with a clipboard would stand in the back of the room. And every time the crowd reacted she would make a little check mark and write down the time and if you had x number of crowd reactions like that then thereby it's a scary movie it's a measurable scare uh whereas something like this there you can't measure it it becomes you know vic you're familiar with this term execution dependent mm-hmm. you know <laughs> by the way it's interesting that he uh the director david robert mitchell uh actually didn't tell anyone what movie he was making because he thought that were he to pitch this, people would think it was ridiculous and stupid and wouldn't work and, you know, preposterous. And so oh, he basically know. just made the movie. Vic, you, you've been in pitch rooms and pitch situations. I think that, you know, really clever, weird, interesting, high concepts, you know, will really get some attention. But very similarly, if this film had kind of gone through the gears of that machine, then inevitably you would be sitting in the little rooms and drinking the bottled water and having people going, okay, let's run down exactly how this works, exactly how it stopped, dot, 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 because they have to then turn around and go to someone who's above them and describe why this is going to be a scary movie in like quantifiable terms. On these X marks are the places where the movie is going to yell boo the audience and here is the very clear set of rules that will allow people to understand what's going on even when we put them into a nightmare it's still going to be it's going to be like a haunted house where it's like even though it's nightmarish situations it's still like go down this corridor turn left boo okay now go through this door boo okay now you're done this is a a little bit more like you know like the haunted mansion at disneyland yeah, we're, we're, and and again, that's fine. I mean, if that's what you like, then that's what you like. It's fine. It's cool. I mean, it's art, you know. So, I personally, I love movies that take me in a new direction because I feel like I've seen the first kind of movie many, many times, and you know, the the best that I can get is a good version of that kind of film. Whereas if you do something that's a little weirder. And a little more nightmarish, a little more dreamlike, a little stranger, I think, that you kind of push into Lovecraft territory. One of the things I found intensely frustrating was not about this film, but the process by which it was released. You know, this came from Dimension, and you would think that Bob Weinstein would be, you know, Dimension, that is the home for a movie like this. They were going to put this out on demand, and it wasn't until everybody else looked at it and said, what the is wrong with you this is the best horror movie in the last 10 years that they put it out and you could just tell i mean i think the final box office was like 14 15 million no it was 20 did was it yeah imdb says 15 i think wait yeah. on, and uh gross according to imdb was 14 6 well are you talking maybe that's domestic because uh yeah. i looked it up on wikipedia obviously a movie like this isn't going to do gangbusters business overseas with no stars well, but, but 
I agree, sure. but look, my point is there. Also, was by the way, while you're talking about that, um, I also saw that per screen average, it made forty thousand per screen in its very initial limited release, like to mm-hmm. convince people. I mean, it was it was opened at Sundance, but premiered at Sundance. But it, yeah. it was the highest per screen average in that super limited release of the entire year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think that studios. I I'm I'm stunned that this did not make forty or fifty million dollars. Yeah, like like they're like like twenty years ago, studios knew how to do this. I heard an interesting. I think it was Mick Garris actually, who's been out uh, touting the twentieth anniversary of Sleepwalkers, and uh, he was what he said was that studio marketers know how to do an event. Is that they, by the way, though funny that you bring that up because I just heard that show, uh that movie come up on the show, How Did This Get Made? And they pointed uh, out that at the time that movie was a big hit, Sleepwalkers. Yeah, right. It did so it did great box office. So obviously studios did know how to market that because it's a yeah. piece of crap and it did very well. I saw it in the theater. So did I. <laughs> I the too. But that's my point, is that studios know how to do events. They don't know what to do with a good movie. Um, I remember this came out around the same time as Ex Machina, which was another one where I was like, how did this not make 50 or $60 million? Like, this is the kind of perfect, you know, low-budget genre film aimed at a smart crowd. Like, you know, I mean, you guys know this is what Arnold Copelson made his fucking living doing. There, there was a way to sell this movie. There were people who knew how to sell this movie it's 20%. all independent production companies. I don't. I didn't see Dimension anywhere on anything that's like well, interstitial. I thought, no, no. At the at the very top of my stream was Dimension. Yeah, Dimension distribution. It was released under Radius. Yes, yes, that is and that is true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not at ground zero of the production, but I. I watched the film's release very closely because I was interested because I liked it a lot. And from what I recall is they did a very slow platform mm-hmm. where uh, the idea being that uh, by the time it went to a wider release that enough uh, word of mouth would have built some buzz and, you know, then it would when when went wider. It would, you know, find life. And uh, apparently that's not what happened is uh, it did extremely strong business in specialty release, but when it went wide, I think it only added like something like nine million dollars to its total, uh, and then just kind of fizzled. So it was, you know, very much seen as a film that you know found its audience, and that's it. Not everyone loves black metal, but there are people who like black metal. Well, this might be a case of Wikipedia being inaccurate, as people love to claim, because uh, the twenty point six million worldwide is on Wikipedia, and it does not have a uh, citation. So, who knows? Anyway, uh, let's move on because we could we could dance around this uh, this beautiful woman all night. Why don't we take her to bed? <laughs> <laughs> nice seg for uh, a, a, a film that is very 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 much about sex yes. and uh, in a way more explicit manner than most I, I, you know there's always this idea that uh there's this kind of trope that horror movies have you know uh that punish teenagers for having sex that's actually very moral uh, type deal, and uh, this film is about sex, but and in a certain way, in a very direct way, it punishes the characters for having sex, but not in like the film doesn't. It, it doesn't feel like the film is weighing in morally. It feels like the antagonist 
is weighing in morally or not even morally. I don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of a, it's an interesting kettle of fish. And one of the many things I love about this one. Yeah. You could say that a lot of the ideas that this film has are, you know, if you like the movie, you'll say they're subtly woven into the fabric of the narrative. If you don't like the movie, you'll say that they don't come through and they're not properly, uh, executed or conveyed or communicated to the audience. This is a film about a, an antagonist that continues to kill buff, attractive guys until a nerd can lose his virginity. <laughs> I, 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 I think uh, I, I support a film with that kind of message. I think that this movie is <laughs> it's one of the saddest portrayal of the beta male that I've ever seen <laughs> because it, it, it's an hour and a half of watching this girl consistently decide to not fuck this pining kid next door until she absolutely has to to save her life and even then it's like she's like miserably walking down the sidewalk with him at the very end <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like every, every time uh she uh, you know connects with another guy or talks about it or anything else the camera keeps cutting back to this poor dude Paul Paul is the character's name it's like i i, I was both laughing and weeping at this guy. Like he's not as bad as Shelly in Friday the 13th part three, but there, there, there is a really pathetic hangdog aspect to this poor guy's life. Another weird thing about what Tarantino said was that he had a major chub for this kid. Like he kept saying, and the kid is gorgeous. The nerd, like I don't need what, what's up with that. Like, and he finally gets laid and we're supposed to think that like, that's this big accomplishment. I don't I'm not I'm totally paraphrasing and not quoting him but he was definitely making it seem like they cast like too good looking of a of a boy in this role. Uh I mean, maybe I I uh, I, don't, no, I don't know if you I, I I disagree. I don't have I don't have any issue with that. This guy looks right. suitably pathetic especially next to the other guys Hugh and uh Greg. 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 Yes, Greg. Yeah, uh, the guy the actor is named pathetic but next to them. Right. The actor's name is uh, Keir Gilchrist, and I actually knew him from that Showtime show, United States of Terra, Tony Collette vehicle for a while there. Let's get into the nitty-gritty a little bit here. Uh, the film begins with this other victim, this the first victim that we meet very briefly, uh, which is kind of a traditional uh, sort of open, where we see sure. somebody farther down the line of what's the, of the same experience that our protagonist is going to find herself in we have to establish of, yeah we, we establish the threat in the opening scene yeah and this is very i mean there are a lot of sort of parallels to the ring in this film sure this yeah. is definitely a big one an obvious one mm -hmm. and uh this character we end up learning her name is annie and uh i was struck watching the movie in the theater the first time by the fact that she's wearing high heels as she... I didn't notice that until today. Really? I figured that maybe she was getting ready for something, or I don't know. Well, yeah, that ha has always kind of rattled around in my head, and and there were things today that I saw or you know found out about that I didn't know watching the film two previous times in the theater. But I figured this one out, I think, and I believe that the high heels sort of suggest, and the fact that she's good at running in high heels at what we assume is a 
tender age. She looks to be, you know, she's definitely a teenager. She's wearing high heels because she's sexually precocious. And I think this is kind of a symbol of uh... embodying her desire to be someone older, someone sexier, and more sophisticated. And in some way, that desire may have led her to this predicament. And I think that's... Interesting. Yeah. Huh. That's my, huh. that's my huh. read on that. I think that's not only about the character's sexuality, it's also about the char- human sexuality at a very specific time in your life, when you're like 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, really about the fact that they're just becoming adults, but there's still enough childlike quality that there's an innocence, there's a naivete, there's kind of a fumbling aspect, and also there's a lack of freedom. You know, For instance, Greg is a little bit more of an alpha male because he's he owns a car the other characters are still too young yet to have keys they have like a little kid bike out front i noticed that our protagonist almost never wears shoes she's almost always barefoot throughout the entire film and the film keeps contriving to maintain that even though if i had something following me around i'd be in nikes all day you know (laughs) but uh you know the fact that even though he's got this super shitty beat up station wagon it's still a car and thereby has the wherewithal yeah, you know, he's got a little bit of facial hair. You know, I mean, the dude's probably like 17, but he's already around the corner of enough that the other characters kind of immediately, or the girls immediately go, uh, "Wop." Well, yeah, and, compared to and, Paul. Yeah, and poor Paul just kind of tags along and and complains. But, <laughs> but this is you're raising a interesting point that I think is very nebulous in the film. I I think that exactly how old these characters are is a little hard to put your finger on. And there are definite clues that they are older than they act and older than the themes of this film would have you believe. Because I do believe the movie, as you said, is very much about the discovery of sexuality and the transition from child to adult and the terrors that are associated with that. Both the terrors associated with the discovery of sexuality and with just, you know, becoming an adult. And in many ways, this film is like the jaws of sex in that. Well, that's. On the one hand, you know, uh, when you're this age, it can just be this kind of like goofy thing that you just kind of do. But at the same time, the stakes are so fucking high. Horrible things can happen, you know. Uh, It's a strange mixture of, you know, just kind of fun, goofy, having fun, figuring out who you are, partying, da-da-da-da-da. But massive rocks can land on your life. Yeah, I mean, you could get AIDS, you could drive your car off a bridge, you could, you know, father a child out of wedlock. You know, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen as you're sort of figuring this shit out. Where did the car, the car with the bridge, where where did that one fit in? Well, I was uh, just, you know, like in the sense that, like, you have a car for the first time, maybe you take it out to 120 Oh, I got you. I thought... I, I thought you were making a oblique reference to Roadhead, but okay. no, 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 no. But anyway, these she's clearly in community college. She makes references to high school in the past, so I think they are older than that. It immediately appears, even though she's clearly, you know, very innocent and and. Uh, not ready for this big step forward. Are, are you sure? Is that a community college that we see her when she gets chased out of the, the poetry class? There's there's clues, but I think he's purposely making these things nebulous and unclear. I mean, like somebody pointed out that there's seems to be multiple seasons throughout the film, and their clothing seems to you know kind of go back and forth in ways that 
Like it happens, you know, whether it's fall clothing or winter clothing or she's in the pool, you know, you could maybe make an argument that all of this is like in very much the Indian summer, but mm -hmm. it's, it seems to be, he's intentionally back to that idea of a dream. You know, he's keeping a lot of details vague and shifting and maybe even, uh, you know, intentionally ambiguous. Yeah, I agree with that. I, uh, something that I kind of keyed off of even the first time I watched it, but, you know, uh, it kind of pops up in reviews is the technology, you know, that they're kind of surrounded by this very uh, retro tech. You're watching old monster movies on old black and white CRTs, you know, da 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 but cl the clamshell phone is something that keeps getting mentioned. You know, by the you way, can't just so that people are, are clear on what that is, he has invented for this film, I'm 90% positive this does not exist, He's invented mm -hmm. this form of Kindle, this e-reader that uh, is like a, a compact, a mirror makeup compact that's yeah. in the shape of a, a clamshell that one of these characters is always reading literature in. And yeah. why that is in there, I have no freaking idea. But, you know, I, I, it's not beating you over the head with retro stuff. It's not like, it's 1979, and now we're going to watch The Exorcist, and, you know, oh, you know, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter, and da-da-da-da-da. I like all the usual horseshit that movies have to do to kind of stuff their period setting up your ass. Uh, it doesn't do any of that stuff, so it, it remains, again, nebulous. It, it's a little dreamlike. It's a little, you know, it's not making very strong statements in terms of its time setting or technology level and you know again it's like I and mean, that's something that you can just kind of take as one of the film's charms uh as a choice and roll with it or else you know you can hate that because it's not explaining what's going on to you in a very clear way i read that the director actually did all that stuff sort of consciously that there's a mm -hmm. weird there's all these weird juxtapositions that there are cars that are old from the 80s and cars that are newer the girl in the beginning uses a cell phone, but you don't ever really see a cell phone again in the rest of the story. Um, yep. And actually, one of the things you read that I, that I, one of the things I read that I did not notice when I was watching the film is that he even keeps the clothing variable so that you can't tell what season it is. Um, mm -hmm. The characters wear heavy clothes, they wear light clothes, they wear bathing suits. It could be it could be winter, it could be summer, and and you're you're not meant to know. To be able to get that kind of that kind of grounding in the film, which is I, I think is is clever. Although you do come away from it asking all these questions about, well, wait, why did what was up with that clamshell e-reader and what was you know? And but they all have tube TVs, and I mean, I think it contributes to a vibe, something that you notice and you sort of find yourself asking those questions. Yeah, I, it really comes down to I, I mean, it's very clearly an artistic choice, and I. I it comes down to subjectively, do you like the, that choice or not? Like, I love it. It 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 adds, uh, uh, it, like you said, it removes the grounding from your feet. You can't go, okay, it's da 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 da. You know, there are no clear answers. It accentuates the dreamlike element, uh, the malleability of not only the monster that's after them, but also their surroundings. Their reality is malleable. Uh, it and, wants to and, tell you not to take all these dumb details too literally. I think part of that is trying to get you into a headspace where you're accepting of the fact that this is, you know, not a mystery whodunit in those traditional genre ways. Like, or, a, you know, kind right. of, all right, how do we figure out the plan to 
you know, exploit the weaknesses of whatever our opponent is and, you know, save the day and resolve the problem and restore normalcy. This isn't one of those films. And there are clues that we, you know, people that like the film, I think, pick up on an almost subconscious level. And it makes us more open minded to some of these, you know, the things that could be described as fuzzy or vague or underdeveloped because the whole film exists in this sort of almost tone poem kind of reality that is, again, so dreamlike. And I would also say that, uh, not to dig too deeply, but as I mentioned a minute ago, this is a movie that's about characters, you know, at a very specific time in their lives. They're discovering their sexuality. They're transitioning from children to adults and kind of fumbling their way through it. And I think that, you know, the haziness of, you know, who you are, where you're going, what you're doing uh, reflects itself in their surroundings and the monster that's after them. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting in that opening sequence, we don't see it. And this is one of the only times in the film, there are a few, but we don't see where it is. That makes you just wonder, like, where where is it, like, in relation to her? And knowing, having seen the film, you know, multiple times, it becomes kind of the fun game as you as you watch this uh, this early character, Annie, uh, running back and forth from her house, and uh, you're just sort of like filling in the gaps of where where this implacable walking creature is in relation to well, her. Well, John, you, you touch on something very wonderful about this movie. One of the smartest things about the filmmaking is uh, this movie does an excellent, excellent job of training the viewer throughout a lot of this movie will watch Jay react to the presence of it. And the other characters are like, what's going on? What are you looking at? Or do you believe me? That's that, you know, like, like when they're at the beach house and she's running around like a nutcase and they just kind of have to buy that. It's really something. And in that opening scene, the movie trains you to see this movie through the eyes of people who are not haunted by it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, so like when she runs out the door and is obviously frightened, but she's trying to keep her cool. It's a very excellent piece of acting right there. And the neighbor is, it's a strange enough piece of behavior that the, the neighbor is like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, 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 I'm cool. And the neighbor persists and she goes, are you sure? Because it's just odd that you know a girl would just run out into the middle of the street and, and with this frightened look on her face and just kind of back off. And then she runs back into the house, and her dad's like, "What are you doing? What's going on?" And then she just jumps in the car and takes off. And I love that the the cell phone starts going off and she just ignores it right up until she gets to the beach. But then when she gets to the beach, what happens? She gets out of the car, she sits in the sand, and she looks out into the darkness waiting for it to appear. And the movie doesn't show us it in that moment. It only shows the aftermath of what happens when it catches you. It's great stuff, man. It's really fantastic because it shows you what the movie's about, but it doesn't still keeps a lot of cards still in its hand. I, those early scenes actually reminded me a little bit of watching uh, the early scenes of Predator in that you know there's something there, and I found you find yourself searching the screen sort of desperately trying to find some hint or some clue of the presence of this thing that you know is there uh except there's no hint of it when you think of all the scenes of you know billy stopping and staring at the jungle and the camera pans across it and just as a kid i remember going it's got to be there somewhere 
and like you know staring at the television trying to find it. We should do that uh, movie on the podcast. Oh wait, yeah, we'll I know, that. right? <laughs> it does well, but look, there's a there's a certain there's a tension in that. Like there's a way of generating tension in the audience. You know, again, if you put your a skilled director and a, and a script that casts that kind of mystery over a frame, uh, you can put those things together and have something very scary where nothing is happening. Yeah, but exactly. they, they know but, to hit us very hard somewhere yeah. in this sequence, and they do. Like the sudden shocking image of this broken body, literally broken as her leg mm-hmm. is aiming the wrong way. Uh, with the shoes still on, <laughs> as she lies in the sand dead. You know, that is a very, very striking and even iconic, where it, like it's just maybe a little too gruesome to even be disseminated enough to become iconic, but it's very disturbing. And that immediately we talk about establishing threat and that the menace is real. And it's kind of like if, to, if you want to go back to uh, Predator, it's like the skin bodies, you know? Yeah. They're like, whoa, okay. This is- this is what they're running from for the rest exactly. of the movie. This yeah, thing. yeah. The, the, there was a, when I first saw it in the theater. One of the only things that I personally had some pushback against was when it catches up with uh, Greg and kills him in a completely different fashion. And it wasn't until I rewatched it and realized that this is what the movie is doing—that everything is malleable. Nothing is certain. Uh, even like the basic rules of the monster uh, can be toyed with, not in a sloppy way, but in a you know it's going to do what's going to do you know in order to accentuate its own terror. When it catches you, something bad happens. That's all you really need to know. I mean, does it bend you in half? Does it suck your energy out? You know, uh, who cares? Yeah, it's not well, Jason. The- this is the dilemma that Stephen King described in, uh, I think, in Dance Macabre, where he talks about there's a monster on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. How much do you open the door to get the maximum amount of scare, right? Like there are some movies, if you think about like the Blair Witch Project, where you don't open the door at all. And then there are movies like The Thing, where you throw the door wide open and let the monster in. And so I feel like that scene, at no other moment in the movie do they get it even a little bit wrong. But that scene with Greg, they open the door a little too wide. We'll get to maybe, that. Maybe. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. So the next scene is introducing Jay, our protagonist, and we as the viewer, I had the sense that we're intruding on this very innocent, childlike, pool time scene uh, where she's just sort of in her backyard pool alone and then her sort of happy, calm place where she gets away from it all. And we are approaching it in a POV, uh, you know, kind of initially unmotivated, but, you know, the perspective of somebody watching her that prefigures the POV of the stalking force that of it. Well, you know, uh, she actually but does get stalked by, by, by the... By yeah. the cre- by the creepy little kid. Yeah, who's, yeah. Who's... Important to note. Important to note that ultimately it is motivated because we have the reveal that she's being ogled by two younger boys spying on her in the pool, mm-hmm. and it's underscoring that she's become a sexual object, even as she has alone time in this very childlike backyard pool in her demure one piece. And she seems, you know, at this point, comfortable with that. And that she says, I see you derisive, perhaps, but untroubled and slightly amused. 
And yeah, she she's playful in response. She's not horrified, like, get out of here, you perverted kids. You know, it's not like that. Yeah, yeah, but this is kind of like the, not the first time that she's experienced this kind of thing, but this is sort of I, like her having to come to grips with the fact that this is the phase of life that she is entering and entering it with without her father and, you know, kind of flying or and with her mother, who's clearly an alcoholic, you know, she's sort of flying solo here as she has, as she deals with these new desires and the desires of others being imposed upon her. I found some commonality between this film and nightmare on Elm street. The first one, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the absence of parents, uh, it's single parents. And even if mom is there, then she's a drunk. And, uh, I, I think both of them, their fathers are gone. Uh, you know, the, the characters live across the street from each other in this very bucolic suburban neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, Greg mentions that, you know, he, his father used to take him up to that cabin, but there's no hint of him at all when they're, he and his mom are kind of spying on them through the, the front picture window. Like there's no sense of that. Uh, and we find, uh, you know, a Polaroid of Jay and her dad in her bedroom. You know, there's a sense of the father and family photos. I mean, it's not punched really hard, but it's very clear that dad isn't here either. Greg actually has the line when they're, when they're on their way to the cabin, Jay's sister says, you know, isn't your mom going to freak? And he says she won't even notice. Yeah. And yeah. You're, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Cause that, that very much made me think of nightmare on Elm street, except that it lacks even the, the, uh, police officer father figure of authority. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like, it does sort of figure into it that Nancy's going to get dad to come save her at the end or whatever. There's no adult who comes to the rescue. These kids are on their own. We, we see two mothers, both of whom are ineffectual. One won't notice Greg is gone. The other one we see boozing it up with a friend of hers. And uh, consistently they go, Jay, you're going to tell your mom? And she's like, no, she'll just freak. You know, it's like even if even if you got her on your side, she would still be useless in the situation. And Paul and... Um, Yara. Yeah, Yara, yeah, Yara, yeah. It's like, and we, we have zero sense of their parents at all. Uh, although we do see that they have an after-school job. So I, I, and I don't think that they're alone, but you know, it's, you know, they're, 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 they're just old enough to be left to their own devices. They're autonomous. I, I, you know, they're very 15 to 17, these kids. Well, there's uh, you know, the horror trope that you isolate teenagers in these situations. It's not always just crassly commercial or, you know, giving the audience, uh, your target audience, someone to identify with that they can actually relate to. I think part yeah. of it is just that, you know, horror films are such a metaphor for dealing with things when you're out of your element and dealing with things for the first time and the sort of excitement and the thrill and the terror of all of that. I think it naturally goes hand in hand with, you know, all of movies or all storytelling seem to be obsessed with the coming of age story anyway. Sure. Like, why would horror be, you know, any different? And there's just mm-hmm. something more. Actually, this film, I think, ties into this directly. There's something more compelling about watching characters come to grips with the idea of mortality, you know, that, that teenagers have very little conception of sometimes. And this is kind of when you really realize, oh, yeah, we are all going to die. And, and the mm-hmm. biggest takeaway of this whole film to me is that it's about that. 
And when I got this time from Yara reading in her hospital bed, and I'm sorry, I feel like thematically I do have to jump, jump to the very end of the, of the film because it's come up here. She's mm -hmm. reading from, you know, what she's reading, this book on her little clamshell. And the excerpt is so clearly in lines with the, the themes of the film as I understand them now. She's talking about the certainty of death, the proximity of death, of not being a person anymore. Mm-hmm. And understanding yeah. that not going to heaven or being reincarnated or anything like that, simply no longer existing anymore, that is true existential dread. And that is what we all eventually have to come to terms with. Because she's talking about the idea that, like, I can't quote it, but like it's, you know, knowing that I'm an hour from death, I'm 15 minutes from death, I'm two minutes from death, and no, now death is here. And that is the worst. That is the worst. Well, the idea of the film is that we're always, all of us, trying to stay a few steps ahead of death, but we know that it's going to catch up to us eventually. Mm -hmm. And we all are dealing with that in some way. The idea of the film is that love and having someone to share that with you is a distraction from that, but in some ways it helps us avoid the death pursuing us. And that's kind of obviously textually what happens in the movie. I read a lot of uh, stuff leading up to this because I think more so than say Friday the 13th part eight, <laughs> Jason takes Manhattan uh, this lends itself to a lot of different thematic interpretations. And there's a couple of, of very intriguing pieces about this movie as a not as a metaphor for STDs, which is sort of how it was initially taken as sort of the, the your most basic knee jerk reaction to it. A lot of people. Yeah, you, you, uh, you can read that. And I, I've had that conversation on multiple occasions. Ah, oh, you know, it's a ghost STD that follows you around. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it's like I mean, if you just enjoy the film on that level, then so be it. You enjoy a film. It's it's fine. But yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that that is one sliver of what this movie is about. A lot of the interpretations that I was reading talked about it as a, a fear of aging and and of getting old. And, and again, you know, as crystallized by this image of death coming for you every moment of every day. But a lot of the imagery within the film, or the, the first time that she sees it from the, the window of her classroom, it's an elderly woman. It's an elderly man that she sees on top of the house when they're driving away. You know, when she and Hugh are playing the trading places game, Hugh wants to be the, the little boy. He wants to he wants to go back to being young when his you know, when you have your whole life ahead of you, that that becomes the ideal. Mm -hmm. And by sheer coincidence, I encountered a in a different arena, but a, a digression about aging where somebody pointed out that, you know, we used to revere the elderly because it was an accomplishment to get old. If you were, you know, 75, well, that was a fucking thing because most people didn't live to be that old. Well, right. now you don't – it's it's not such an accomplishment. Now it, yeah, I, we, we don't revere aging the way that we once did, and so it really has become within our culture and especially to teenagers and those sorts of people has become – Something to be horrified at, something to be scared of, something to be run away from, even if it's on a kid's bike running to 
a playground in the middle of the night because how else do you escape from these things? So yeah, you're you're right in the sense that uh, it used to be if you were a 75 year old person, then you were clearly genetically superior. You were a badass. You had figured something out. You're a survivor. It's like how did you pull this off, man? And now if you're 75, it's like you're probably still working as a greeter at Walmart because you need the minimum wage job because you're a burden on your family and you have no insurance. It's like <laughs> you know, I had never thought of any of that. Um, I read an article today that it was in Bloody Disgusting, actually, and it was suggesting that the film is about life as a, the survivor of sexual assault, and mm. they make a very well, good case. I would say that one of the I, – I, in a film that's full – you know, in a horror movie, it's filled with – you know, it's, it has a demon that chases you around and a girl that gets broken in half and, you know, like over horror movie supernatural type stuff – for me, one of the more hair-raising beats is when uh, Hugh just dumps her out of his car in front of the house mm-hmm. in her underwear with her hands tied and then like squeals away. And she's and still she's drugged. Just, yeah, she's, she's still, still weak. Yeah, she's still collapsed in the street in front of... I, you know, in front of this nice house in the suburbs, and like she's been gang raped by soldiers in a civil war. You know, yeah, it's the, like the it, it's sort of language or iconography of that scene screams rape. Like there's yeah, yeah. It. It's like yeah, it's like she's been used up and discarded too. And you know, the family, you know, her friends come dashing to her aid, and uh, you know, it is funny. Uh, we cut to a massive police presence. There are a ton of emergency vehicles out there. There's red and blue rollers going on. Uh, we see the police gently questioning her about her experiences. They follow up on the entire thing. We see the police investigating, looking for clues and finding them. And then when later on, when Greg is straight up murdered in his own bedroom, uh, we, we get like one police car parked <laughs> In the driveway, and no lights, nothing. It's like, yeah, dude. Uh, well, shit happens. Yeah, I don't know it's what's like, up with that exactly. I, I wondered on the on the the sort of the internal logic questions. I found it interesting that they had that enormous police presence, and yet no one seems to find the house that he was living in that they find effortlessly. You know, thirty minutes later in the film. I think I you know I bumped on that and at the same time i've known people in real life who have had very good relationships with an investigative police situation and other times you know the department is just kind of stretched and you know they they don't follow up on like even like really basic stuff (laughs) you know so i i i kind of took it as the latter Again, back to the idea of what this film is doing, who really cares? Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the context of this film where, you know, we're not even we're not even sure that these people are being presented to us as necessarily fully fleshed out characters yeah. in the traditional sense. They're yeah. they're, you know, going through something in this sort of artistic vehicle, this dream that is intended to make us think about things, and that's okay. And I would I would say just to back up very briefly to the aging thing, not not necessarily mm. death, but aging. Uh, you know, there are a lot of quote unquote rules that this 
film happily violates, but it can't help but adhere to at least a few. And one of them is characters can't read anything unless it's in some way important to the themes or plot. And uh, of course, a character can't sit in a classroom and hear an instructor say anything unless it somehow pertains. And um, Mm, I want to say, I want to comment on that, that the first two times that I saw this, I did not think that the quotes, and there are a bunch, were, you know, in any way obviously connectable. You know, only today in the third viewing am I really going like, okay, I'm trying really hard and now I'm seeing why this is in the movie. Yeah, I I would say that it's playing to standard tropes but in a smarter and more subtle way, but they are tropes nonetheless. And uh, for instance... When she's in poetry class, the instructor is reading this poem, and uh, I'm not poetry guy, so I just grabbed a couple of lines. I Googled it, and it's uh, the love story of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Love, Eliot. Love, love, love song. It's, it's love song. Great. Sorry. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, I just said that I'm not a poetry guy and immediately proved it. So, uh, but, but you know, I, I I did you know some quick analysis and uh, basically uh, from what I gather is the consensus is it's about a middle aged guy you know coming to terms with the fact that he's you know kind of a mediocre dude you know and that's fine kind of sorta if we're gonna say that it's a film by aging you know this is a film that's you know presenting them with the terror not of being dead but of being fifty years old one day I disagree I, I with just, that. I, First off, I want to just say, I, I looked up one thing, too, and there's a reference to The Idiot, Dostoevsky's uh, The yes. Idiot, and it's, that, uh, you know, Yara says that it's about Paul, and, you know, of yep. course you can say on the surface, ah, <laughs> uh, The Idiot, you know, that's a joke, right? But then I wanted to see, well, what, you know, what was this character? And he was this sort of paragon of innocence and virtue and goodness that is perceived to be an idiot because he stands out so much from everyone else. And then I'm like... Huh, you know, that kind of is Paul. You, you could read him that way. That's very true. He is uh, the character who's consistently good and pure um, to to almost childlike level. I, yeah. I, but I wanted to say, like, why I disagree with you about the aging thing oh, is yeah, yeah, that okay. I, I don't see it being about, like, personally, and again, I, I hadn't even thought of it, so I, I would have to watch the movie again to really to know for sure, but... I don't get like the idea that our character uh, Jay is, you know, concerned about getting older, you know, you know, so much, you know, and and she doesn't even have an identity yet, let alone having that identity being threatened by the fact that she's lost her her sexiness, you know, like she's not even to the point of using her sexual power uh, consciously, you know, she's just experimenting with that. And then there are other like more obvious cues, and I wanted to bring this up before. And I don't mean obvious, like in a blatant way, but she finds an ant on her arm in the pool and drowns it. Yep. And I think like, why do you put that in there? I mean, it could be just something that kind of happened and they're like, oh, whatever. But I I sort of felt like it, it, it suggests that she is still kind of struggling with notions of life and death. And again, her well, father has died very young. There's a lot of things yeah. swirling around in this film that, that are about the inevitability of death. The thing with the ant, yeah, I saw that. I'm like, oh, look, she kills a little bug. But uh, on the other hand, there's a later beat where uh, they were kind of in a little powwow behind the guy, the artist formerly known as Hugh's house. And she, <laughs> and uh, instead of watching him as, as he talks, 
the camera instead pulls our attention to her just kind of picking these little blades of grass and lining them up on her leg. And I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that like kids do when they're sitting in the grass. You know, they they kind of pluck blades and just kind of make a little arrangements. So I, I mean, it's shit that I did when I was you know wee lad. Oh yeah, you know? I noticed and, that uh, too, and I don't disagree at all. Because but I do think yeah. that this is a lot about kids coming to terms with reality. Yeah. Like that's why I think it's relevant to both interpretations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, she has two that uh, her marvelous little speech after they've had sex in the back of the car, and he, we, we mm-hmm. now realize, is getting the chloroform out of the trunk. Really yes. <laughs> cast a darker pall over that scene. But uh, she, and she's saying, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think about going on dates and like mm-hmm. holding hands and going in the car and like, you know, we'd just be driving and it didn't matter where we're going. But... Listening to the radio. Yeah, you know, and pretty. But now that I'm here and doing it, where are we going? The, what's the point? I mean, it is the confrontation with the reality of the fantasy that she was probably having two or three years ago. That, that scene is absolutely fantastic because uh, it puts you in this very, very nice space and again yeah she she's kind of giving this you know this daydream that she's had when she was a kid about what this would be like to be with a boy like holding hands and he's really cute and we're driving in the car and listening to a radio and then he climbs up behind her and slaps the chloroform rag over her face and it's so horrifying it's uh, it's such a huge massive gear shift that i mean i remember when i saw it in the theater i was like holy fuck like out loud you know it's like <laughs> yeah it's such a rude awakening which is a funny ironic you know idea that he's putting her to sleep but it's a rude oh, and, awakening and, and, and you want uh irony is he's doing that to save her yes exactly yeah. to, to to save himself by it's like he's doing like this really super horrible stuff well there's also kindness. this physical detail that backs that up and that he's still he's kissing her back and you know, yes. he's he's being warm to her even as he's about to, you know, wrap this like a second later he wraps the chloroform around her face. Mm-hmm. And it really like you could you could read that without knowing uh, what's going on that that he's a sociopath or, or whatever, but no, like actually we find out that in his mind he has no ill will towards her. I mean, he's not he's certainly not a hero in this situation, no. but you know, he 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 has affection for her to some degree. And he just, you know, he, he, he feels that he has to do this. And, and I think it, even though, like, I don't think the actor is, you know, the next Robert De Niro or anything, I think that he actually has a, a few little subtle beats where you, you can see the guilt that he's wrestling with. It's something that very much comes to for in subsequent viewings. And uh, I loved uh, the sequence where they track down his little inmost cave. You know, he's rented out this house in order to um, perpetuate them. this masquerade that is an older guy and da 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 da. And I, we won't crawl up into the details of, like, uh, you know, how you rent the house and yeah. all that. Because I, you know, it reminds me of the theme song in Mystery Science Theater 3000 where it's like, you might ask how he eats and sleeps and all these science facts. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It's just a show. You should really just relax. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's some, I, 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 when it comes to like really hardcore, like thrillers and whatnot, it's like, yeah, but it's like, I mean, this is like this very dreamly, dreamy nightmare of a film. It's like, whatever, I don't care. And the music but, really supports that. Yeah. But 
One quibble that I do have is I think that the film missed a wonderful opportunity when they arrive at his suburban house, which is um, nicer than their neighborhood, but not significantly so. It's like one half of a step above. And she goes in there and and mom's like, do you want to come in? And she's like, yeah, sure. And then the film cuts to them out back just kind of talking we miss that wonderful opportunity to have her walk in that house and have him like come down the stairs and be like, Hey mom, what's for dinner? Ah! <laughs> Girls here. Ah! I think there's something interesting about his character in the house that he's occupying. I mean, obviously from just from a horror movie perspective as they come in and you find all the windows are strung with bottles and little alarms and stuff so that he can hear if it's coming for him. But I found it just, again, touching on this notion of age and coming of age and these kinds of themes in it, that what we find is it, is that this is what I feel like a 13-year-old would be. If you, if you turned a pre-adolescent loose on suburban Detroit, yeah, he'd have a house with no furniture and a mattress on the ground in the attic and a porno magazine with... Yes. Tissues all over it. Yeah, I know. I love. I dude, that shit makes me laugh out loud. Especially the fact that Paul picks one up. Yeah, <laughs> like, he picks up a tissue. He's like, "What's this?" And then it immediately dives straight into the porno mag collection that rivals Dallas as an alien. But it just keeps coming back. Um, but no, did you notice that he's plastered over in the upstairs in, in what is his bedroom? Mm-hmm. He's covered the windows with pages from comic books. Right. I, I see. Um, that's the thing is, like, I, I they they mention it in dialogue that she that he's twenty one. I think that's a lie. I, I think that he's uh, either. No, he met the girl in a bar that he uh, got this from. Right. 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 That's yeah. right. So so he is. I. I. I, I Okay, l- let me posit this. I think that when you're 21, I mean, j- just in the same way that most of these characters are like transitioning from children to teenagers, he's transitioning from a teenager to a full-grown adult. It's like, I mean, dude, I, I, I wasn't like an adult until I was like 32. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. I, 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 when you're 21, you're basically, basically mentally, you're a teenager who can drink, you know? And uh, you know, so uh, he most is... Yeah, and he is, yeah, I'm just saying, uh, given the opportunity to have a house to himself that he's finagled renting to perpetuate this masquerade with Jay, you know, it's obvious that he's had some alone time. And what does this dude do with it? He plasters up comic book pages and he gets a mattress and he lies around and reads nudie bags and jerks off. It's like, (laughs) the one the one thing that he has with him is a picture from high school of him with this high school girlfriend yeah stuck stuck in a porno bag which yeah. I, loved, I loved about that and okay let me tell you this if he has like all those bottles and shit uh up on the windows it suggests that he has slept there he's spent enough time there that he's like oh i should put up some alarms in case i relax while i'm here while i'm jerking <laughs> Well, I'm jerking off. I should have some alarms. So, uh, again, we have parents who are just like just kind of cool with him vanishing for long periods of time. And he has the wherewithal to rent, you know, rent a house. Yeah, we I, we don't really know the the deep specifics there. But, you know, clearly this is part of a double life that he's he's leading. Uh, I wanted to I mentioned the music before, and I think that definitely needs to come into this conversation sooner. Oh, yeah. Later. Yeah. 
Dude. Wow. Well, I mean, guys, we've been talking about this for a while, and we really haven't gotten very deep into the plot, uh, let alone touched on some major, major elements like the music and the cinematography and uh, the creature itself and how how that works, the mythology itself, the mechanics of it, how it works and doesn't work, depending on your point of view. So let's save that conversation. Let's bust this in two and come back next time and do another show. What do you say? Let's do it. I'm down to clown, bro. Awesome. Awesome. Now, uh, to, to bust it in two, John. <laughs> To uh, to wrap up tonight's conversation, though, because we've we've been really looking at the broader picture and the larger themes, I, I think that's something I didn't mention before, but that I think is a big part of why I love this movie so much, is the fact that it creates a new mythology. And I think that oftentimes the best horror films, the best horror stories, introduce some kind of a new antagonist, a Freddy Krueger, a zombie, a vampire, a, you know what jaws, whatever you want to call it. Like the, the antagonist has its rules and its own sort of, uh, whether it's a well-defined backstory or like some, in this case, like a mystery that we, we really want to solve something that hooks your interest and stands out from everything that we've seen before. And I, I love the, it and it follows. What do you guys think about how this creature stands out from others in the past? Well, once again, I mean, what's what I find significant about this is there is a certain mentality for which it works. And what I find is, to me, the idea of being infected with this thing that you could get on a plane and fly somewhere. But no matter what you do, wherever you go, you will always be haunted by the fact that this thing is coming for you is fucking terrifying. That idea that you can never relax, that you can never escape that idea, even if you do pass it along, even if you pass along and it gets passed along a hundred times, you know that at some point it's going to work its way back down the line and you might be 85, but there's a chance that thing is just going to show up on your doorstep coming for you. And that vision in your head of something moving constantly towards you just at a slow pace i mean it goes back to romero it goes back to friday the 13th i mean it's that that image is something that i think exists culturally larger than just this movie but this movie makes use of it in a way that nobody has before and it's it's if that works for you then it is fucking scary i think there are people for whom that doesn't work who don't think that's scary uh, and so, you know, those people aren't going to dig it. Look, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian house, household. I find The Exorcist to be a fascinating film, but it doesn't scare me in the way that it scares people who grew up, uh, I think, with a, a stricter religious upbringing. Devout <laughs> believers, you mean? Well, I, I, you know, we weren't devout, but we definitely went to church and The Exorcist is still one of my top two. It scared the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid and continues to do so. It's, I still find it a deeply creepy film, not because it's plucking uh, religious strings, but I mean, it may have at some point in time in my life, but I, I just think it's just a creepy movie. Mike, you, know? you, uh, you said something about zombies once that really stuck with me, and I, I think of it when I, when I see this film. It's the idea that in the zombie apocalypse, you have to sleep, but they aren't. And no matter how weak or 
decayed they are and maybe you can take one or two or three or however many you know you're now capable of doing in with your various weapons and skill they are coming for you at all times inexorably and just knowing that is is part of the terror it's in all slow zombie movies, but especially uh, it was underlined in The Dead when yeah, those two I was thinking were, of that. Yeah, when, when those two characters are driving across the desert because they're in a jeep, they have guns. You know, they they have every advantage possible, but they have to sleep. And even though they're mobile and they're uh, alert and awake, and they have all these things over the zombies, they're basically one lug nut away from being at the mercy of this constantly tightening noose. And I think that when horror does dread right, it's to remind the audience that they're going to die one day, that all of us have a noose around our necks that is constantly tightening. And we can exercise and eat right and get and sleep and avoid fried foods and we can loosen that noose, but eventually it tightens for us all. That's that's when horror becomes not fun anymore. And I think that's why films like this get more pushback because dread isn't fun. It isn't boo ha ha ha. It's not a roller coaster. It's not a haunted house. It's it's reminding you of uncomfortable truths. It's delving into mortality and and you know uh, creepy, weird, deep sexual things that you'd rather leave in the basement. Even though for the most part, this movie is very on its surface chaste and very rarely gory. It's still on a darker level. Uh, a lot more effective, yeah. And you know, and when we're gonna come to monsters, one of the other things that I love about this film is the fact that there's no backstory. John, you brought up Jaws a moment ago, and there are very few horror films that I can think of besides Jaws in which the antagonist just doesn't have a backstory. It's just kind of there. One of the things that I liked about uh, the the original The Ring so much was uh, uh, Naomi Watts. I'm talking about the American remake. Naomi, Naomi Watts' character thought that by jiggering around with the narrative as we so often see in horror movies then she would solve the problem and then you know her her son karen culkin is just like no <laughs> it doesn't work like that you're just kind of doomed anyways yeah so it's like which is I, more realistic yeah but i and very very often horror movies are built around these kind of almost fairy taleish narratives and in fact the uh the high concept often comes from the villain's backstory and their powers i mean freddy krueger is a perfect example it's like you know he's burned to death so now you have his burned guy and da 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 how he became a dream dude who wants you in your nightmares you know had to be explicitly explained but only in sequels you know uh whereas this thing is just like it's just kind of there it's got rules, and even the rules are very loose. And uh, but there's no like you know, there's no professor exposition giving you the old legend. There's no guy who loved his wife so much they followed her everywhere, and they got hit by a car, and because she was cheating on him, and now he follows people around who have sex. Da, 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 da. There's none of that horseshit. It's just a thing. It's just a curse. But at the same time, there's still a malevolent element to it. It still fucks with you it's not like a shark that just eats and makes more little sharks like it actively dreams up ways to frighten and mentally torture you within the realm of of its capabilities and i I think that that's the best of both worlds you actually says at one point it'll 
you know, if it gets you, it'll come for me and right on back down to the line the, to the first person that ever, you know, that started this. I love this movie enough that if we found really capable filmmakers that could bring around sequels, then I would love to watch those sequels. But I despise the idea of one day sitting in the theater or sitting around watching Netflix and watching an It Follows 3 in which we see that story play out, the original person. I, I don't want to see that. I, I don't want it. But that's I the sense, the, the feeling that this movie conveys, and this isn't anywhere in the structure of the narrative or the dialogue or anything else. The feeling this conveys is that it just goes back and back and back and back, that there is no beginning. That is, that is why it works. And that is such a horrifying idea that there is no, this is, you know, an Ouroboros. This doesn't, there, there, there's no getting back to the start of all this. Well, no, that's not true. I, I think that it follows uh, the, it is ultimately doomed itself because uh, and not all of the people that have been affected by it over the course of time are going to be still alive. I mean, I mean if we're going to say that this is an ancient demon, then eventually it will, it will kill the last person who's been infected. And what happens then? Does it fade from existence? I disagree, though, because I, I think this is about the the capacity for the human need for survival that people would just go on passing it on and on and on, knowing what they were doing, doing exactly what Hugh did, exactly what Jay does over mm -hmm. and over again to people that she cares about. Mm -hmm. All you have and, to do is fuck people over. Thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You've been fucking people over since the beginning of time, so that's what I mean. I think there is no beginning to this to this snake. This probably could just go on and on and on forever. That is horrifying to me in a way that, again, if you went back and explored the you know the the Ring Zero version of this story, would ruin it. I absolutely agree with you, Mike. I think that uh -huh. this explores something that that is without beginning and without end. Well, it plucks on the idea that in order to maintain your own survival, you have to indulge in a certain level of evil. Because when it comes to you know the Friday the 13th movies, let's just say, I don't know if you guys are familiar with these films. but Is that um, the one where the guy has the chainsaw? Yeah, never, never heard of it. Okay, so in the Friday the 13th movies, you know, I mean, there's there's this kind of running canard that you know it's very uh, overall. There's this idea that uh, it's very moralistic that if you're a teenager and you do drugs and have sex, then a guy comes and kills you because the movie itself wants you to die for violating this rule. Horror is all about you know punishing people who violate rules. Uh, they step outside of the campfire, either metaphorically or physically. And in this case, uh, this is a film that um, you can only survive. You know, but the kids were like, I'm not sure you should stand in a campfire. I'm not sure that's good advice. No, I'm, I'm saying <laughs> step, step outside the light of the campfire. Is what I, I meant. Uh, know. You know, it's like, but anyways, um, I. Uh, I'm on my fourth vodka soda, so there we are. Um, so, anyways, uh, but the idea is they're ultimately innocent. They're ultimately innocent. Like they they have like one rule that they break, but it's just like you know they get laid, and it's just like who doesn't want to get laid, you know? But in this case, it's not about whether you get laid or not. That's not your crime. Your crime is fucking someone, so the disease in you goes to them instead of you. And even then, what I love is the fact that you have to. Like Hugh, like he he doesn't explain the the rules to Jay out of this altruistic thing. 
it's to maintain his own survivability as long as possible because if it gets her, then it comes back to him, and by that time, his guard is let down. This is something that I think we should talk about tonight because we've discussed earlier the idea that there isn't the sort of tweety academic to explain the roles. But in this film, Hugh kind of fills that that role, you know, because he does impart a lot of, for lack of a better term, exposition. Or... Well, see, here, I, I, here's the thing is uh, Hugh does it right, in my opinion. What I always kind of bump on is the uh, the very clear uh use of uh you know we're gonna create this character who only exists within the story to impart this piece of exposition professor exposition and i i I, very often horror movies do require a certain level of exposition but i think that it's vastly more effective when it comes from a character who would organically be part of the story anyways. And yeah, I know if we're gonna talk about the ring, I'm gonna point to Brian Cox in the American remake where uh, he does kind of impart, you know, his function as a character is to impart this exposition, but he's still an organic part of the narrative rather than, you know, some. He's a direct participant in Samara's story. Exactly. I I, I, I would rather, I I think that a, someone who is brushed up against the narrative and survived to tell about and have some news to pass along is a far more effective way than, you know, kind of the bullshit like, uh, well, we have to go talk to this guy. And, you know, they walk into the lecture hall and he's like, you know, this well, is the true. folklore. That, yeah, I'm just, I mean, the, the reality is that, that, that it is a character who probably knows more than he, he should. Like the idea of someone else telling him this or, you know, like – that is never broached. Like it seems like he's ah. You're you're wondering why the bar girl would explain all this. Okay. Well, it's not necessarily like I understand why she would in the sense that her motivation is the same as it is for for him. And, oh, you know. see, yeah, yeah, dude, yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Is the longer I, I mean, that makes complete sense. Is not mm-hmm. only does the character give you the curse, but they also give the exposition. It's wrapped up in the curse because it behooves them to do so. Because right. if it gets you, then it comes back to them. So it it completely behooves them to lay out this kind of. I mean, it's basically a chain letter. You know, it's yeah, not I, an SD, Yeah, it's not an SCD. It's a chain letter. It ties <laughs> back into the ring in, I think, in a very specific way. In that, the way out of the curse in the ring, we learn at the very end, is to make a copy of the tape. Yep. In both in both yep. instances, the way to escape the curse is to perpetuate the curse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would yeah. say that film ends like very much on the the beat that. They are making the conscious decision. Rachel Naomi Watts is making the decision to pass it on. And that, like that movie yeah. ends where this movie begins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. This I, movie I, blows I, I, through that earlier. Yeah, it, 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 you know these kind of films, uh, both these films, uh, they make you complicit in the evil in order to save your own ass. Uh, most other horror movies, it's like uh, if you can you know, do the thing and dispel the ghost or else you have a one line thing and you kill the killer and then you're done. But maybe he survives anyways for the sequel. Da, 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 da. It's like you can maintain your own moral superiority 
in It Follows in the Ring, you don't you you can defeat the evil temporarily, but in exchange you shave off chunks of your soul. You 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 you, you shave off a piece of your soul in order to save your body. <laughs> one last thought, yeah, literally, yeah. Uh, one last thought because it it came up earlier, and I think this is the the night to to tie the bow on that. The idea of being in a pitch room, or you know, like trying to sell this idea, and, and especially with the sexual element, and people not not really uh, understanding that. I have always like just personally found the intersection of sex and horror to be really powerful you know and yeah there's a degree of there you can there can be some fun and titillation in it but i think the horror of it is you know almost self-evident i think of movies like david cronenberg's rabid not rabid mm-hmm. actually um they came it from came within from, shivers yep, yep, yeah yep. Mm-hmm. uh rabid actually has plenty of sexual horror sure but put that aside um it you know, like I think it's something and, and Hellraiser to a degree, like it, it's something that I think can really, really work. And I'm glad that this film takes that on. But a lot of people just don't get that. And I remember thinking that, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, like, wouldn't it be cool if you had like a haunted bed and you don't know it's haunted until like this ghost woman starts fucking you every night. And at first it's kind of hot, but then you start to realize, you know, what she really is. And, you know, I could not really get many people to, to, to see that that would not be somehow, you know, silly or, you know, you laugh at it, you titter at it or what, she's fucking him or, you know, like it's got this sort of hard for people to grasp. And I think the idea that this thing, we know it can fuck you. Maybe it doesn't always fuck you, but it has like in the form of, of the kid's mom, Greg's mom, like, let's get into that scene when we pick this oh, back yeah, up. We will. I, I, that's we will. such a fraught fucking yeah, scene. But that's I so just, crazy. Absolutely. But the mm-hmm. point that I'm making is that this film also brings sexual horror like to to the forefront in a way that I think is really scary because you don't know what this thing is going to do to you as it kills you, you know? Right. Yeah. And yeah. like for all we know, it broke that girl's leg backwards that way while it was fucking her. Who knows? Maybe. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There's definitely a, a threat of sexual assault within, you know, loaded within the the creature's premise. That's w- what makes this genre so powerful. Yeah. That makes me love it so fucking much. Is it's one of the few genres that will directly, in a very serious way, really hit very very basic elements of the human experience: sex, death, morality really broad deep gut level lizard monkey stuff yeah it deals with such big issues that if it isn't powerful yeah you are kind of doing it wrong mike i think sex death morality would be a great metal band just if you ever get back into that i think uh that's going to be the um uh the subtitle to my autobiography uh, the, You're right. That's that's more appropriate. You're right. Yeah. The the, the, the main title the, the main title will be the Mike Kuchek story feces not included colon uh, sex death morality and that's actually C O L O N. That's not a that's not yeah a, it, yeah yes yeah. exactly. <laughs> the, the the title will take up the entire cover, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, um, we're all 
very much eager to read the 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 premise uh or i'm sorry the the prologue the the introduction to mike's autobiography which he may uh at one point give us a sneak peek at in our podcast but for now <laughs> you'll have to just wait until next time when we was, tackle the next uh the, the next part of hit follows it was a dark and stormy night i was born to apes and raised by wolves <laughs> <laughs> yes all right well gentlemen it's been a pleasure and i hope everyone enjoyed listening we can't wait to finish this up as we go a little more granular and scene by scene it follows yeah, please, everyone come back so you can hear me talk about the cinematography of It Follows. I know you're fucking waiting with bated breath. You want to hear Mike weigh in on the mise-en-scene? <laughs> mise-en-scene. I just want to hear uh, Mike bated breath. Bated. <laughs> yeah, uh, l- l- listen to me drunk, uh, get drunk and talk about horror movies. L- let's do that. Yes, let's do some more. <laughs> <laughs>